This is D2C Journey. We talk to innovative e-commerce leaders driving the growth of exceptional D2C brands. We dive deep into their stories to bring you powerful perspectives and actionable insights so you can build a more successful e-commerce business. Keep up with us at d2cjourney.com. Let's get started. This podcast is sponsored by Reviews.io. Reviews.io have created a platform that helps businesses gain insight, build trust, and manage their reputation through the power of review collection and management. Reviews and user-generated content needn't be costly or difficult to manage, which is why Reviews.io created the most feature-rich and cost-effective Google-licensed review platform on the market. Reviews.io makes it simple for customers to review the product and the company, whilst giving you all of the benefits of review collection, including Google Stars, seller ratings, improved customer trust, more website traffic, and higher conversion rates. Find out more about what reviews can do for your business at www.reviews.io. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, James Lane, and my guest today is Rick Agraval, the founder and mind behind the success of The Meatbox and currently head of e-commerce at I Love Ugly. Rick's journey took him from the wholesale space to establishing a successful online meat business before navigating a successful exit and transitioning into the world of fashion. His keen insights and strategies have been recognized with several awards, reflecting his commitment to excellent customer service and effective marketing. Today, he shares his wisdom with us. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, James, for the warm intro. Very flattering. Pleased to be here. Thanks. Great to have you here. So first question is, how would you describe where I Love Ugly are on their D2C journey right now? Great question. Look, we're a maturing brand. We're a pretty successful eight-figure brand, no longer in that growth, early growth stage. We're certainly not infancy, and we've been around nearly, got our 15-year anniversary this year. So very much an established brand here in New Zealand. We've, we've got a lot of brand equity. We've got five stores, but we also have a big footprint overseas, predominantly in the US and North America and Australia as well. So with other markets that we're exploring and, uh, and hoping to break into. So yeah, it's a brand that's come from very humble beginnings. It was started in its bedroom by the founder, uh, Valentin Ozic, and it's come a long way and it's, it's seen some very rapid growth. And it's been one of those real success stories for a, a modest uh, Kiwi brand. Amazing. Well, that's a, that's a great position to be in, especially for you as the e-com, head of e-commerce. So yeah, amazing. So I'm going to take it back a little bit to start with. I would just want to talk about your journey prior to this, specifically with the meat box. Could you just give us a bit of background on how you went from wholesaling meat to eventually starting uh, the meat box? Yes. So this is back in 2015, uh, the idea of the meat box first uh, seeded itself. Look, I was in the wholesale space selling premium quality meat product into restaurants, hotels, you name anybody in the hospitality space who wanted to procure meat product that was better than what you'd typically find. And when that happens, you're the guy when you go to barbecues or Christmas get-togethers or or family get-togethers and and you bring the meat along. And what tended to happen was the feedback and the comments around the table would be, wow, this is amazing. Why can't I get this from my local butcher or, or my local supermarket? Tastes so fresh, et cetera, et cetera. So the light bulb moment really was, I mean, I didn't want to have a, a corner store butcher. I had no interest or thirst for doing that. And it was very early stages, but I knew or I had a gut feeling at least that 
online was the vehicle for achieving scale. The drawback with corner store butchery is you've got the catchment of your suburb and the surrounding suburbs, and there's just no scale there. So the ambition really was to grow something significant and, and saw a hole in the market that at that time was really underserved. Different story nowadays. And it, it began, basically took everything I had. It was, it was about 11,000 and put that into a website, some equipment, and really taking a leap of faith. I think the best thing you're equipped with at that stage is, is probably a bit of naivety and a bit of ignorance. And you think that it's it's a bit easier than it's going to be. And it started there. We built a, a website on WooCommerce and looking back now, it was, it was hideous. It was copy heavy. It was poor imagery, you name it. But I think the message and the offering really struck a chord and fast forward seven years from then and uh, yeah, we had multiple awards for a Deloitte Fast 50 business when we scaled it to a, a high seven-figure brand and look, it was, it was at that time where the question you really did ask yourself was where's the rest of the scale going to come from? What is the market cap here in NZ? What's the opportunity for the export and what does that look like and what does that entail? And after a lot of those kind of internal discussions, it was really a matter of going, well, why do we table selling the business and see what kind of interest we get? And, uh, and seven days later, we had an offer on the table and it settled three weeks following that. So it was all very quick, but it was, it was a roller coaster from start to finish, from inception of the brand to actually selling it. So yeah, it was a great journey. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. And definitely, you know, at the start, lots of, I guess, the right conditions all came together. You know, you spotted the gap and there was nothing like it at the time. And obviously, you know, you needed to take that leap of faith as well as, as every entrepreneur does. But yeah, what a fantastic story. So when you think back to, you know, some of the key milestones and, you know, strategies that you implemented in order to eventually get it to the point where it was, you know, high seven figures, what springs to mind for you? Are you able to share any kind of key milestones or strategies? Absolutely. First and foremost, you have to be talking to a very particular audience or a very particular customer. You have to be honing in on solving one particular problem. I think as soon as you try and be everything to everyone, you start to dilute your offering, you dilute the message and it falls flat. So we were very much about agitating a problem that was pretty widespread in the sense that everyone found supermarket meat underwhelming. And we really played on that. We agitated that problem. You know, it was a lot of the copy and the messaging was around underwhelmed with supermarket meat, question mark. Uh, you know, the hooks were easy in terms of the advertising to really capture the interest. And from there, it was really about telling the story, connecting with local farmers and old school butchery techniques that have kind of gone by the wayside. And, and from there, it was being aggressive with the advertising mix and and the channels you're marketing across because you can run the risk of thinking small, especially when you've got a lot to lose. And I think that was one of the advantages of jumping in and not really knowing what to expect is you were just thirsty for that scale and you just you looked at the advertising opportunities available and you, you jumped two feet in and it worked really well. We learned a whole lot along the way and like every entrepreneur, I think you've You've dabbled with agencies and freelancers and you've done your own homework. You start to find a bit of a, uh, a feel for what you're good at and what you like to do in your business. And the key on the other side of that was actually outsourcing what you know you're not good at and bringing people in who are good at it and taking that off your, uh, off your desk. Because anyone who's run a business knows that there's a thousand and one things to do and you never get all those thousand and one things done and it's really 
about prioritizing what is going to move the needle and drive the business forward and get that growth. So to answer your question, really leveraging digital advertising, doubling down on good softwares in terms of your tech stack, in terms of your, what you use for your EDMs, jumping onto Shopify after a certain amount of time and, and really leveraging what was possible there. And, and the rest is really history. Yeah. Awesome. Amazing. Cool. So you also won uh, various awards and received nominations for excellence in marketing and customer service. How would you say that those accolades contributed to the growth and credibility of the Meatbox? Great question. Anytime you do get accolades like that, it's great to use those awards as trust badges or or credibility markers for customers or, or at least shoppers who are browsing your site or looking at your socials sending meat through the mail essentially especially early on it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek for people it's a hard one to really convey a lot of surety when you're sending something chilled through a courier network so really giving them that that sense of peace of mind that we've got fantastic reviews for one thing we've received these accolades from you know in the way of awards and and there's there's proof in the pudding, so to speak. I think it's very difficult when you're trying to sell something and you've got none of those markers where you choose to put them, where it, whether it's you know right before the checkout process or in your cart drawer. So you're seeding that from a very early stage before you get to that drop-off at checkout. Because as we all know, that drop-off happens from landing on your, uh, your homepage right the way through. So as early as you can seed that prominent throughout, it'll pay dividends. So we really use that through the site, but also in our EDMs, socials, you name it. It's really rich collateral to really include in all the comms you've got going out to customers, both existing and and when you're prospecting new ones. So that was really valuable to us, Yeah, especially being a local business that wasn't exporting. Westpac Business Awards, Deloitte Fast 50, they're, they're household awards that people know, understand and perceive as reputable. So we absolutely uh, leveraged that so we could. Yeah, they're definitely amazing markers of quality to have and definitely a big kind of trust builder for consumers, aren't they? So customer service, obviously a huge thing and potentially a big thing that lots of online businesses struggle with to get right. Can you talk about some of the strategies that you implemented to improve your customer service, drive those positive customer reviews and yeah, ultimately have people coming back and being a big advocate for the brand? Mm, Absolutely. We understood that that first purchase was the biggest hurdle. Someone who's purchased and they're happy with the product they received and the service they received would come back more likely than not. That's that first initial purchase that we understood where the uh, the challenge was. So really making it clear to the prospect or the shopper that we had a guarantee that we were happy to stand behind and honor hand over heart. And I think whatever you're selling, that's really critical giving customer a degree of peace of mind, knowing that if they're not happy in any way, shape or form with the product or service, they can get their money back is really part of the course. And that was something we really leveraged. We sewed that into just about every piece of comms in terms of our prospecting and our advertising and our email and so forth. And I think that was a really a really valuable thing to do and it's something I'd urge anyone to do going forward because that's the most difficult and expensive purchase to get over the line is that initial purchase. On the back of that, when you do have issues, how you tackle that, how you resolve that turns an agitated customer into an ambassador 
for your brand, how you turn that around. It's an opportunity to really take someone who's, who's potentially going to have a sour experience and really delight them and over-deliver. And although it can hurt because it comes off your bottom line or it's cost out of the business, it does pay dividends over time. It, it has a return. You just can't measure it, measure it on a, a profit and loss statement, at least not initially. So that was something that we did as well as really stand behind it. COVID was a really big one for that because there was a lot of strain on the courier network. There was a lot of ambiguity around when customers might receive products because it was hard to communicate because we didn't have the visibility we'd like to have in terms of where the order was in, in the transit. So really just allaying fears and, and any touch point we had with the customer, letting them know that look, if the order arrives in any way, shape or form, that's not as you'd expect it, we'll honor a full refund or, or replacement. And that really disarmed customers and they felt really good about it. And I think it actually framed up when the meat did arrive or the order did arrive, it framed it up in a way that they're probably a lot more forgiving if it didn't come in exactly the right condition they had hoped because you had front-footed it and really been the one to make contact and say, hey, look, if it's if it's not right, we will fix it. That goes a long way because all of us as customers, we are discerning, we are wondering, well, how's, how's this business really going to take my complaint or take my poor feedback? Are they going to be defensive or come back aggressive? Customers typically don't want to be confrontational, but they've also got skin in the game that paid something. They deserve the value exchange. So that was another aspect that we we really uh, saw as an opportunity to do the right thing and earn some goodwill with not just existing customers, but the bucket loads of new customers were acquiring through that phase as well. In terms of the review side of things, Google and, and how SEO works is a lot of smoke and mirrors to a lot of people new to it. But one thing I see is both an SEO opportunity, but more just a, another credibility marker was building your Google rank, uh, your ratings. And instead of just focusing on product reviews, we siphoned 50% of the EDM or the flows essentially post-purchase to actually giving us a Google review and incentivizing that with the, the coupon off the next order, which again, incentivized a repeat purchase. And that works fantastic. I think the business now is up around a thousand odd reviews, which in the grand scheme of things isn't too big. But when you consider the market in terms of online butchers in New Zealand, it's head and shoulders above anybody else. And that was great because what do we all do when we look at a brand, we check out the reviews. So Google is a nice one because I feel it's perceived as a third party review of sorts. Every brand has has the software they use to capture reviews. We tend to look at those with a little bit of skepticism, but when it tends to be a Google review, we tend to hold more weight. So that was great. I don't have you know tangible metrics to say that really worked, but sometimes you just know in your gut that was the right move. And in hindsight, looking back, I'm happy we did. Yeah, definitely. I think customer service is so vital for online businesses, and I think it is something that a lot of businesses, you know, kind of discount with its importance. And yeah, they don't look at those customer complaints that they might get as much as an opportunity as they actually are, because you really can turn somebody who is, uh, I think you can turn somebody who's disgruntled into a huge advocate much more easily than you can turn somebody who's just kind of there and existing as a, as a kind of satisfied customer. You can really delight somebody who's, yeah, a bit disgruntled yeah. into a fantastic brand advocate. So 
you eventually decided to exit the business. What was it that motivated you to exit the business and what advice might you give to other entrepreneurs as to kind of what signs to look out for when it might be, you know, the right time to exit? Mm, different for everybody, I'm sure. For us in particular, look, COVID was a roller coaster. It was high highs and it was low lows. It was a testing period, but the brand really grew through that period. Looking at, and obviously we've had 12 months following the exit to, to prove myself right, but I thought there would be, predicted there would be a contraction following COVID. Governments were spending money just about everywhere. Inflation was on the rise. Uh, there, there was always going to be a contraction to some degree. Naturally, when you're going through that much growth and pairing that against the market cap that was available to us, I felt, hey, look, a, a attractive multiple would probably be about this time if we we're going to put a stake in the ground as opposed to any other. That was coupled with also New Zealand, you know, we're, we're a country of 5 million people, premium meat product. It's not as scalable as I would hope it to be because I want some degree of exponential growth before we start to see diminishing returns. And looking at the numbers and, and doing some research around it and, and growth trajectories and, and funding cash flow and, and looking at how hard we have to fight to, to get new customers on top of the ones we had moving forward and more competitors coming into our space, it was going to get harder, not easier. Export was something that was just tied up in red tape and I had ambitions of exporting to Hong Kong and Singapore on overnight air freights, which we have three overnight air freights leaving the country each week. That was the opportunity. The, the power of the New Zealand brand is so powerful. There was room for more margin, more line extension. But unfortunately, a brand our size with the players we have in the market, I saw that as just a real challenge. Not an impossibility, but a real challenge. So bringing all those things into the equation, I thought, well, what's the harm in actually floating it? We're in the driver's position at the moment. Let's see how we go. And in the back of my mind, look, anytime you're an entrepreneur, business owner, owner, you name it, it can be lonely at the top as well. Everyone's always looking, obviously, to you for decisions to be made. You're trying to keep stakeholders happy. You're trying to keep family life happy. Everything's depending on you making the right calls. And thought, well, hey, it would be nice to maybe not be in that position for a little bit and kind of enjoy the fruits if we were to sell it. So yeah, fast forward, listed it in um, March of 22 and uh, yeah, the rest is history. So that was, that was really what was driving the decision to exit the business. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. Amazing. Okay, cool. So you then made a bit of a detour, went from the food industry to the fashion industry. So yes. what motivated you to join I Love Ugly and take on the role of head of e-commerce? Interesting transition. At the time of, of exiting the meat box, I had a real passion for the, the digital advertising, the growth marketing, retention marketing, you name it, just everything e-commerce. And I thought, what better way to really flex those talents and actually craft the next stage of, of my journey and consult to e-commerce businesses trying to crack into the seven-figure turnover territory. So I was actually looking at job ads, thinking what are the pain points and, and challenges for e-commerce businesses and how are they writing that into a job ad and that could help me write my copy or my hooks for how I go and prospect for, for clients. I had a couple of freelance clients that I was working with that just came up organically and quite enjoyed it. 
and then I came across a job ad for head of e-commerce for I Love Ugly. And I Love Ugly, they were on my radar already. They had won the Deloitte Fast 50 award uh, a few years before us. A cool story, founder, Valentin, he's a West Aucklander like me, so a lot of similarities and I've always liked the brand. And so I crafted a, a bit of a different cover letter and flipped it on through and uh, ended up having a, a conversation with Valentin and it turned into a, a bit of a sit down and a chat and interview and, and a, a job offer. So yeah, it was probably not your most traditional path to jumping into a salaried role, but it just felt right and haven't looked back. It's been fantastic. It's been great. Amazing. Uh, so what are some of the challenges that you're now facing in the fashion industry and maybe that you weren't facing in the food industry and how do they compare? One aspect of, of what we did do with the meat box, which in hindsight was even more advantageous than I thought it was at the time, is to achieve scale, we really were better at focusing on branding and customer satisfaction and so forth and not being actual butchers and running a butchery floor with butchers and packers and so forth and and leasing so much space and drove that up the supply chain to those that we sourced our meat through in terms of the abattoirs and really pushed on them that, hey, look, we've got the volumes, you guys have the the capital, you guys can invest in the infrastructure and, and plug our product through there and we can basically just place a purchase order with you that's more or less standing in nature and can dial it up and down accordingly and it, it really fit their model and it allowed them to amortize their capital costs over more volume and, and we really rationalized our suppliers in, in doing that too. So it made the business model a lot more simplistic and we could focus on our, our strengths. It was great and we could increase our output accordingly. The best thing about that was we got paid by the customer before we even had the product land in store and go out. So the cash conversion cycle was fantastic. We were incredibly liquid. Looking at a fashion category, you've got to be so far out in front. You've got to think about funding inventories. Forecasting is really important. And we choose to invest in product and what you think the winning product will be. So that's really a consideration that we didn't have to battle with in the meat game, but we certainly do in this one. Outside of that, look, it's highly competitive. You're talking North American market, just about everyone's trying to get into that market and get cut through. And, you know, there's a lot of noise. So trying to acquire customers in that environment without moving too far away from brand and, and your positioning and, and your message is a really tricky journey, but a challenging one. And the other aspects of being in a fashion category and also a premium brand is there's other things to consider. There's collateral, there's promotions, there's how you promote to ensure that you're not promoting too often, but ensuring that you're reducing stock bloat and, and ensuring those financial metrics that drive the business forward and, and don't provide a handbrake are in place as well. So yeah, very, very different, very challenging, but also same skills, just flexed in slightly a different way. So it's it's yeah. It's interesting. It continues to be challenging and interesting, but it's great to always be learning and on that learning trajectory. I think some of us stay in things probably a little bit too long sometimes. And although you don't want to always leave your comfort zone, that's the best thing for you to, to really challenge you mentally and, and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah. It's good to see what goes on on 
you know, on the other side. Cool. So one of the things that it's really important to have deep understanding of in e-commerce is your numbers. Could you talk a little bit about how you leverage data and analytics to, you know, drive your decisions, your profitability, um, just kind of day to day in what you're doing? You have to know what every dollar in your business is doing. It's easy to get caught up in the bright, shiny objects and go chasing those, but you have to know what every dollar is doing. You have to know how much is costing you to acquire a new customer. You have to know what it's costing to retain customers. You have to know what your churn rate of customers is and what impact that has on the business. You have to know what your LTV, you know, how long are you actually retaining a customer and how much are they spending once you strip away the cost of a product, the cost to acquire, et cetera, et cetera, and layer that back against um, your acquisition costs because that defines the cash runway you do have. If you don't, landed myself in hot water in the early days by not paying enough respect to that metric in particular is as you start to go, well, we are growing, we are profitable, but I, I'm running out of cash to pay suppliers and pay staff and pay GST and all these things. So you really do owe it to yourself and, and, and your staff to look at those metrics weekly, daily, and understand them. And if you don't understand them, go away and school yourself up till you've got real confidence around it. I'm lucky, I suppose, that I have a, a an accounting background. I've left uni as an accountant, so it's given me probably a little bit more confidence than some, but it's not the rocket science it's made out to be. It's just paying respect to those numbers and understanding how it can drive the business forward because it's a very slippery slope once you start spending more to acquire customers or, or spending on certain things that aren't so easy to measure like brand activation and, and so forth where there's not a direct ROI and there is a place for that but you have to do that when your house is in order. You can't go doing it when you're trying to acquire new customers and you find yourself chasing a whole bunch of rabbits but not understanding then where the revenue is coming from, what's driving it, what levers are available to do that. So that's a real critical one and that's something you know, I'm I'm really passionate about still doing to this day is, is understanding those and, and knowing where's the opportunity moving forward. We've got a number of regions we sell into it. Uh, I love ugly. Some regions are more profitable than others. Some regions have greater customer retention than others. And it's really balancing that out and understanding where to pour your efforts into and pour the cash into to take a little bit more of a strategic view and, and understand what's going to benefit the business long term instead of the here and now. Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely an area that for you know entrepreneurs who maybe aren't so confident with numbers can find a bit intimidating, and maybe it's something that they you know they know they should be do, you know paying more attention to, but they put on the back burner in in favor of things they prefer doing, like the brand side and the marketing side. But yeah, it's definitely something that yeah. once you do get under the hood, as you say, it's probably not as much of uh, rocket science as they think it is, and and yeah, it's something that's key to get a. A really deep understanding of uh, yeah. definitely, and it's liberating when when you understand your numbers and, and you know your business is in sound financial positioning. Gives you a, a, a real liberating feeling. You you know that because when you are ignoring or when you are neglecting those aspects, it's at the back of your mind always. And you know that's whether you're at work or you're at home or you're out trying to enjoy yourself. You know there's there's something you're neglecting there and it, it kind of eats away. So it, it is a real liberating and brief feeling when you know you're on top of that and actually be a little bit more uh, 
master and commander in the business than a little bit subservient and, and waiting for that invoice to come in that you haven't quite uh, provisioned for. 100%. Yeah. It's uh, always tempting to put things off, but it's never, it's never for the best, is it? Could you share any specific strategies or initiatives that you've implemented at I Love Ugly in order to reduce returns? Because I know that uh, returns in the fashion space is, is a, a big thing and can be a big expensive problem for fashion brands. So yeah, curious to hear yeah. how you approach it. Yeah. A lot of brands are looking at 20% and over for their return rate. And that really is crippling. You know, it's hard to drive growth with that on the back of the sale is, is getting one and five of them back. Look, we've looked at a number of integrations and, and we've used Loop most recently. And, and that one has actually been really beneficial. It's really removed the friction for customers. They can jump on and actually natively shop the website and exchange or create a refund and get that instantaneously. They don't have to wait for it to come back to us necessarily and wait for it to be consolidated in a facility overseas, which I think a lot of brands still do, and then finally get their, their refund or exchange weeks later. It really is real time, and that's been really beneficial. And there's a bun- bunch of other um, advantages to it as well, but the main thing being is the customer knows that something isn't right, they can jump on and get an instantaneous result and carry on shopping. And then the next time they get an email or see an ad from you, they're more likely to come back again. So it really plays into your attention as well. That's been one aspect. In terms of our product description pages, yes, the product copy is very important, but also countering those objections, which might lead to returns is another one. Diminishing the cost to return for customers as well. And again, going back to knowing your numbers, you know, we know we have really low single digit returns for some regions. So we can be really front footed about saying, hey, look, our returns window is this, the cost to return is this, and really making it easy and effortless for the customer, but also that it won't be a big headache or they might get counted on something because there's a million terms and conditions that prohibits them returning the product. And again, that plays into your, your front-end conversion rate as well because they're more likely to purchase. So really looking at returns a little bit more holistically and seeing how that actually improves the experience overall. The loop's been fantastic. I think of all of them, that is the most slick integration and seamless for the customer. And I think that's the main thing for any third-party app you're bringing in is to make it look cohesive, and balanced with the site and not taking them to a a third-party page or anything like that where it's going to take away from the experience yeah loop is a fantastic tool that's what we uh what we recommend to our clients as well so yeah anyone who's listening and is uh thinking about how to do returns i'd uh, strongly recommend taking a look at loop okay cool and then based on your experience in the e-commerce industry i know you've dispersed a lot of fantastic advice so far in this episode, but I guess talking to specifically like startup brands or, or, you know, very small brands, what would your advice be to them at kind of this point in their journey? Yeah, it's, I'm casting my mind back to those early days. I think the main thing, the main message to any budding entrepreneur or anyone early in that stage would be to just keep pushing. There's going to be a lot of challenges and barriers early on, but you will break through those and 
it's not to say that they stop happening, they keep happening, but you form a thick skin and you get more resilient and the problems you encounter further down the track seem less of an issue, even though they're likely bigger problems than the ones you face early. So just keep pushing. It's an experience. It's a journey. Try not to listen to anyone and everyone else because everyone else will always tell you what's right or what's wrong or what you should be doing. But are they running a e-commerce brand? No, unlikely. So why would you take advice from them? Just believe in, in yourself and back yourself and, and do the learning. If you're passionate enough about it, you'll go and do the learning and, and you'll find the time to upskill in and, and anything that you're not good enough at. Then grow your business big enough so you can uh, source it out to someone who can for you and just keep pushing. Yeah, there's so much opportunity. We're at the greatest time now to be selling products and services online than ever before. We've got so many softwares and integrations that make what used to be laborious and hard so easy. So the time to back yourself and, and build a brand online, it's no better than now, in my mind. I completely agree. And uh, yeah, I think that's fantastic advice as well for people listening. Final question is, what's next for you and, and what are you working on at the moment? Oh, we've got some exciting plans for I Love Ugly. Yeah, there's some big plans. And although we've achieved some fantastic growth thus far, uh, we've got some big aspirations going forward. There's other markets we want to crack into. There's line extension opportunities we want to explore. Um, not too much I can talk around in too much detail just yet, but I think the main thing is what seems like blue sky thinking unrealistic now. You think on it long enough, you stew on it, you troubleshoot it, it starts to slowly become a reality. And I think that's what's around the corner for us. I think really looking at, especially in, in the climate we are at the moment, how you retain your customers, how you create value outside of the product you're selling is the defining factor. If you're just selling a product, it's a commodity. You need to create something else that's a differentiator for your brand. So yeah, we've got some exciting things in the pipeline, but everybody will just have to tune in and, and see. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely be keeping an eye open for that. Sounds great. Rick, thank you so much for being on D2C Journey. Appreciate it, Jones. Thanks very much. I've uh, really enjoyed chatting with you, learning about your approach, hearing about you know your history and your experience. And uh, yeah, I'm sure that our listeners have got a huge amount of value from listening to you as well. So yeah, big thanks and, and big thanks to all of our listeners. I'm James Lane and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.